Certified, the autobiography of David Harris. Written by David and Helen Harris. Read by James Pollack. For more information on the book, go to certifiedthebook.com. Chapter 13. I'd walked through a door that I didn't even realise I'd been searching for. That door was Jesus, and walking through that door, I discovered something I'd never known before. This something met me in a lost place and embraced me just as I was. It was a love that did not care what I had or what I'd done. It was a love that knew me and accepted me. Over the next few days, I felt completely enveloped in this new type of love, God's love. It was as if I was having a little taste of heaven. I felt an incredible peace and was convinced beyond any doubt that God loved me and had forgiven me for everything I'd ever done to offend him. I'd never experienced such peace and comfort. I remembered my experience of soothing comfort from the demon spirit years before in Perth. It was nothing compared to this. I was hungry to read the Bible and spent hours poring over it with Bomber. Everything was so new. A few days later, Bomber and I caught a train back to Melbourne and then up to Ballarat. We arrived back at my house, exploding with the news of my experience of Jesus. I went straight to my bedroom and began to smash all the Buddhas there. There was a large wooden Buddha that sat in pride of place on top of my wardrobe that I couldn't break, no matter how hard I tried. I carried it into the front lawn, poured petrol over it and lit it up. I stared at the flames as the idol burned, saying, There is only one way to God, one door, and that is through Jesus Christ. Bomber and I were on a mission. I pulled out my story to my mates, telling them all about Jesus. We hammered away at them for hours. They were ducking for cover, trying to avoid the two religious fanatics who had invaded their home. Bomber quoted verse after verse from the Bible. The words were powerful like a sword. They spoke of our sin and God's offer of forgiveness. We read verses that told the story of Jesus dying in our place so that we can have the free gift of eternal life. Verses that told how much Jesus loves each and every one of us and how he invites us to become a part of his family. We weren't quitting till these guys had what we had. We knew we'd found something really good. We always shared the good stuff with our mates. How much more would we share this love we'd found? Suddenly, something broke in Patrick. He became to weep, tears welling up in his eyes. This was incredible. Patrick was a tough guy. Everyone was scared of him. I'd never seen him show any softness. But here he was, crying. Dutch was also moved, and the day after we arrived, they both surrendered their broken, messed up lives to Jesus. This was exciting for all of us. We finally had the fresh start we longed for. We'd been trying all sorts of different ways to gain enlightenment and no love. Jesus gave us freedom like none of us had experienced in our lives. As it turned out, Dutch's parents were strong Christians and were overjoyed with the news. I guess they had been praying for him. I can only assume we were an answer to that prayer. Not everyone in the house responded to this good news we shared about Jesus. The others in the house saw that we'd been radically touched by something, but they didn't want to know about it. I was just happy to have found Jesus and that he'd accepted me and forgiven me. It was so good to have some of my mates share this new life with me. It was time to plan how we'd do life differently now. I decided to move up to Hay with Patrick and Dutch, so we could begin a new life with Bomber. There were just a few details that I needed to take care of. I figured God would take care of them with me. Firstly, I arranged with my parole officer to have my parole transferred to New South Wales. I knew I lived with the consequences of my past, but I figured I could still make a fresh start. Moving seemed like the best way to connect to this new life we felt God wanted for us, the life we wanted. 
The Victoria Police were happy to move me on, but New South Wales didn't want to take on problems from Victoria. They had enough drug-dealing thieves to deal with already. The police didn't know how to deal with crims who'd supposedly changed. It was with a deep, cutting disappointment that I heard the word, no. I was rejected by New South Wales. Patrick and Darts were able to go, but not me. They all went up to Hay, but I was stuck in Ballarat, living with the rest of the household who didn't want to know anything about Jesus. It was like discovering the cure to my terminal disease, then being told the cure was out of my reach. I liked my mates who were still in the house, but they didn't understand the new me. Realising that I didn't know much about church or how Christians were meant to live, I figured I needed to get into a church because this seemed to be what followers of Jesus did. I decided I would just go for it and try out a church the next Sunday. I picked the church in town, straightened myself up and showed up with a nervous anticipation. The church I went to was very different from the one in Hay. They gave me a polite greeting, but I felt isolated and cold. Something just didn't seem right. The love of God was not as real in that place as I'd known in the days following my big God experience in Hay. I felt somehow faulty. I obviously didn't fit into this group. I knew I had to just keep trying. I was invited to a youth rally down in Melbourne the following Saturday. A big group was travelling down on a bus, so I decided to give it a go. I wanted to attend, but I decided I'd find someone I knew to come with me. The next Saturday, I showed up at the agreed time, bringing along one of my mates a one-legged drug dealer who I knew was searching for the truth. We rode down on a bus filled with youth and other young adults who chatted amongst themselves. No one talked to us. At the youth rally, there was a live band playing and a big crowd clapped and danced along. It was overwhelming seeing so many people singing and talking about God and excitement rose within me to be connecting to something so alive. The preacher got up and gave a passionate message about the need to be saved from the terrible consequences of our sins. My mate listened carefully to the preacher, looking more and more worried as the talk went on. At the end, the preacher invited everyone who wanted to be saved to come to the front. Dozens of people surged forward. There was a tangible energy in the stadium. Before I knew it, my mate went forward with the others responding to the call to be saved. At the end of the night, the leaders of the church rounded us up and filed back onto the bus. This had been a night like none other I'd experienced before. It had been amazing. I had many questions and was keen to tell someone about what I'd experienced. All the way home, no one spoke to us. Isolation on a bus buzzing with hyped activity. We were now Christians, but weren't feeling like Christians around these people. Our long hair, long beards, scuffed leather jackets and torn jeans were clearly different from this crowd. We probably didn't smell so good either. Everyone else on the bus was nice, with nice clothes and nice families and nice homes, they didn't even smoke. It was good to be with Christians, but they seemed to me to be from another planet. It was confusing. I was keen to turn over a new leaf, but my only friends continued to use drugs and alcohol. I didn't fit in with these respectable people I met in church. I felt lonely and out of place when I went. People stared at me like I was a freak. My motivation to go started to dwindle, and I got there less and less. Without a job or any outside involvement, I spent most of my time at home, in a house full of people who'd lived the way I'd lived before my amazing experience at Hay. At the same time, my nana was diagnosed with cancer. I loved my nana and found it cruel that she should have to suffer. I shared my new faith with her and explained how Jesus had helped me change, which pleased her greatly. But the road of change was becoming tough. I felt myself slipping, which made me feel like I was letting nana down too. Deep down, I was angry and disappointed. 
It was not long before I found myself standing like a cold statue at my nana's grave. The news of her death smashed my soul. Nana had loved me unconditionally. The pain of losing her was like knives ripping through my guts. The only remedy I found for the pain was to numb every fibre with a constant cocktail of alcohol and drugs. On the day of Nana's funeral, I had to be woken from my drug-induced slumber. My housemate handed me a syringe with enough speed to get me through that day. I should have been able to mourn my dear Nan. Instead, I felt nothing. Barely able to carry out a conversation, I was dead on the inside. I had tumbled down from the place of peace and joy back into despair. I already felt like my natural father had abandoned me and now, by taking my nan, I thought God was doing the same. Even though I'd made a fresh start with God, it just didn't seem to work out in the way I'd imagined it would. I began to drift back into my old lifestyle. Then Simon invited me to help him with his burglaries. Something inside me said this was wrong, but I saw no alternative. It was not too long before Simon and I were back in business, robbing wealthy people's homes. We cleaned out the houses of businessmen, a well-known retailer, even a TV actor. One burglary included a professional video camera in a flash aluminium case. The camera was unusual, easy to trace and hard to move. So the fence left it in our care. We had buried it inside a plastic bag out in the bush. The fence made a few inquiries with his associates as to what the camera might be worth and who might want it. Somehow, the cops got wind of it. The cops picked up the fence and put a heap of pressure on him to give us up. Knowing they could make his life very unpleasant, the fence talked. Soon, the cops turned up at the house and took us into custody, charging us with a string of significant burglaries, but they didn't get the camera. The owner badly wanted it returned. Simon did a deal with the cops to give the camera back if they gave us bail. An all-too-familiar pattern seemed to be awakening. A date was set for our plea hearing, and we were let go. I was amazed that we got bail. The last time a Ballarat magistrate had granted me bail, I'd skipped and ended up in Perth. With three years still to serve on my old sentence, plus these new charges, I knew they would put me away for a long time, so I decided to do a runner. All my contacts were in Victoria, so instead of heading in a state, I just drifted around from town to town, staying with criminal friends. I spent some time in Melbourne, Geelong, and sometimes went back to Ballarat. I was back on speed and doing frightful amounts of alcohol and marijuana. My habit drove me to do burglary after burglary. A few months later, I got back in touch with Bomber. He wasn't doing well in his new faith either. I found out he was now living at the Victorian New South Wales border town of Albury. I went and hung out at his place for a while. Neither of us were living the life we knew God would want, but there was still a close connection between us like brothers. I guess we related to each other, finding it a tough effort to try and be what God expected. We didn't talk much about it, we just slid into whatever the moment brought us. One freezing cold night, Bomber rode along with me while he took some speed to a customer. Before we knew it, we saw those dreaded lights flashing behind us. I groaned at the familiar sound of the police siren. The drugs were hidden in a film canister. As we slowed to stop, Bomber rolled down the window and dropped the film canister. The cop walked up to the car, asked some questions and asked us to get out. As his partner walked towards the car, he stood on the canister and picked it up off the dark road. Hey, this is warm, he observed, and realised that we had dropped it out of the car. He popped the lid and removed the bag of powder. A rush of adrenaline shot through my veins like a rush of a powerful drug. In anticipation of what was coming, I bolted into the thickest part of the Aussie bush landscape. My throat tightened as I heard a shot squeezed from a revolver. I vaulted over a couple of fences and sprinted across some open paddocks, headed for the cover of some houses that were being built nearby. Eventually the shots stopped and the voices faded away. 
It was bitterly cold and I was miles from anywhere. I couldn't risk going back to the road, so crept into a half-built house. I found the most sheltered corner I could and curled up under a sheet of plastic. The all-too-familiar feelings of isolation and failure swamped me again. The next day I made my way to a mate's place. I could not get on to Bomber. The cops had caught him. Life had unravelled around me again. I was on the run, broke and homeless. The old feelings of being lost had returned. I could not deny the power of what had happened to me in Hay, but had no idea of how to experience that power back in my life again. Although running was a natural response for me, it was not really a life. I was imprisoned by purposeless days that crashed into empty nights. Week after week was spent checking my back and hiding from whatever fears were stalking me on any given day. Months of nothingness passed and I finally gauged it was safe to hook up with some old friends. Simon was keen to work with me and we ended up hanging out at a friend's flat in Collingwood. I was ready to focus my energy back on the lifestyle I knew best. So here we were, our little team back doing what we did best. Yet, dissatisfaction was gnawing into our very souls. We had our strategies worked out to stay out of the cops' ways. For example, it was important to keep changing cars in case we were seen leaving a burglary. We would often buy cars from a fence we knew who ran a car yard as a cover. We had been watching a large house with a business attached to the side of it in the suburb of Hopper's Crossing. Once we were fairly sure that the house would be empty, we drove out there, broke in and started loading the contents of the house into the Datsun we'd acquired a week or two before. I liked the Datsun. It had a Jesus sticker on it, which made me laugh when we used it for burglaries. But still something within me knew that Jesus was still there, somewhere. We had the car jam-packed with goods and jumped back into it to make our escape. Simon turned the key. The starter whirred, but the engine would not start. Come on, he growled, stamping on the accelerator. Just then a woman appeared out of a business nearby and walked over to the car. Can I help? She offered. We're right, thanks. I replied and forced a smile. Oh, Jesus, make this car start. I prayed. The engine fired into life and we were gone. It seemed ironic that I could even talk to Jesus when I knew what I was doing was wrong. My sense of right and wrong had become more defined, and with that, deep feelings of disappointment and shame clung like a monkey on my back. I don't know if Jesus really helped me by starting the car or not, but I do know I wanted his help. There was no peace, but I was relieved when the Datsun made it home that night. Since we were doing well financially, we traded the Datsun for a nice fair lane. We drove it to a robbery on a boat shed, where we were planning to steal a whole load of tools. We parked the fair lane in the shadows at the side, forced the door of the boathouse and began filling the car with tools. I heard the sound of a car approaching, then pulling up outside. Quick, get out, I hissed, motioning toward the door. We slipped out, jumped in the car and sped away. Once again, we had that all too familiar experience of having cops on our tail. The fair lane was built for comfort, but not for speed. And there was no way we were going to outrun the cops. We pulled over, sprang out of the car and scattered in all directions. The cops gave a half-hearted chase and returned to the car full of loot. As we watched from a distance, they had the car towed away for the forensic team to dust for prints. Simon really liked the car and lamented its loss. That night, he cut his way into the police compound and retrieved the car with all the stolen goods still inside. It felt like a victory, but not for long. We were awakened the next night by banging on the door. Simon sleepily opened the door and was overrun by cops. They pinned us both to the floor, cuffed us and dragged us out one by one. With the cop's knee between my shoulders as he twisted my hands behind me, I felt a sense of relief. I'd been on the run for ten months and I was sick of looking over my shoulder. 
Furious that they had been robbed, the cops had traced the car back to the car yard and leaned hard on the owner, who ratted us. Somehow the cops traced us to the flat. I told the cops I was Peter Burgundy from Tasmania, because the cops couldn't share info with interstate forces. That scheme lasted until they fingerprinted me and matched my prints with my computer record. They smirked as they advised me of their discovery and drove home their point with kicks and punches. My record also showed that I had breached parole for an existing conviction and had skipped bail on more charges. Even if they couldn't make anything stick for this arrest, they could still put me off the streets for three years. They were celebrating. I went directly to jail. No hearing, no magistrate. I was gone, straight back inside. Simon had fooled the cops with a tall tale and some fake ID and had managed to get off free. Within a day or two, I was back in Pentridge, D Division, awaiting assessment. It was here that I had an experience I would never like to repeat. As I settled into life in prison in Melbourne, I had the opportunity to get some drugs. Now getting drugs into prison requires some creative transporting. But if I could get the drugs, not only did I get the enjoyment of an escape from the mundane entrapment, but I also gained ground with the people I was connected to here in the cells. The opportunity came for me to act as a drug mule. Taking on the role of mule, I was doing an acquaintance of mine a favour. He was a Lebanese man I'd met in D Division. The drugs were his, but I could gain my own cut if I assisted him as the mule. Being a drug mule was a risky business. Heroin was packaged in such a way that it could be swallowed and then retrieved once it passed through the body. The wrapping was supposed to be done so that it would not burst or be dissolved by the gastric juices. There was enough high-grade heroin in my body to kill me with an instant overdose. This was not my intention. I'd trusted the person I'd met in the last visitor interaction. My Lebanese friend's brother was to secure the package, as if his life depended on it. Anxiety ripped through me. I waited for the time to pass when I could retrieve the package and complete the task of mule and enjoy the reward of getting high. Something I'd once required as daily sustenance had become a special reward. But there was something that terrified me more than the risk of overdose. That someone would rip my guts open for the small quantity of drugs. Somehow my secret stash had been revealed. I had become terrified of attack. My life was worth nothing in the hallways of prison. When a man is in prison for life, he can allow the darkness around himself to increase. I was playing with death, but desperately did not want to die. At the same time, I was experiencing the underlying thrill of the risks I was taking. Playing with death was a merging of thrilling and terrifying emotions. I did it once and survived. Eventually, I enjoyed my share of the cut. This enabled me to escape from my rigid reality several times over the next week, until I was moved to the familiar surrounds of A Division. Cold and cramped, where run-of-the-mill crooks served the bulk of their sentences. One night, I awoke to a crunching sound. It was after lights out, so I banged on the door wall to make the screws turn on a light. Just in time for me to see, a rat disappear down the toilet. The crunching sound had been the rat gnawing chicken bones left over from my dinner. The rats lived in the sewer pipes and would swim through the water in the S-bend, climb out of the bowl and forage in the cells. I felt like I was back in the place of black hopelessness, fear and despair. Certified. The Autobiography of David Harris. Written by David and Helen Harris. Read by James Pollack. For more information on the book, go to certifiedthebook.com.